Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. It is Monday, September the 30th. Anything that you thought you were going to get done by the end of September uh, needs to get done today. Tomorrow will be the 1st of October. Um, And that'll be the beginning of the fourth quarter, right? So this is the last day of Q3, or whatever that matters. It's also Rosh Hashanah. um, And so uh, if you are... A person who's got some Jewish friends today is uh, is Happy New Year. It marks today marks the New Year fifty seven eighty five seven eight zero. You thought it was twenty nineteen. It is fifty seven eighty on the Jewish calendar. So anyway, it's a, it's a little perspective on life today. Okay, um, because I like to share with you things that you might not hear reflected on in other media news outlets. I wonder if you heard on Friday. When House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked uh, to comment on some things about uh, the ongoing impeachment proceedings against the president of the United States, particularly in relationship uh, to the identity of the whistleblower and the president's sense that he should get to know who that is. And um, and perhaps that members of Congress or other members in his staff are spies. Um, uh, Nancy Pelosi did this instead of answering the question. Instead of answering the question in the way that I think the reporter probably anticipated, Nancy Pelosi said this, I pray for the president all the time. I pray for the safety of his family. I wish uh, that he would pray for the safety of other families and do something courageous on guns, but I also pray that God will illuminate him to see right from wrong. So I wanted to pause for a moment and acknowledge and recognize that prayer is not a partisan weapon. So let's pause right there and let's just acknowledge prayer is not a partisan weapon, but prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have. So prayer is not a partisan weapon, but prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have. And we don't wage it in the same way that uh, the world wages war with its weapons. We... um. We lift up our prayers humbly before the Lord our God. We do so by the access that Christ alone gives us to the throne room of the Father. Uh, We humbly ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, those prayers would be conformed to the will of God. I mean, obviously, God's not going to be receiving prayers that aren't conformed to his will, which is why the Holy Spirit serves as a translator along the way, right? So the whole Trinity is involved when you pray. First of all, consider that. That's pretty amazing and extraordinary. Um, But also consider that prayer is a very powerful weapon. You are very powerful today because you are a person who can pray. You you can pray. You may pray. If you are in Christ, then the way uh, has been opened to the very throne room of the living God. So you can pray and you may pray by Christ. Um, And this is not a partisan issue. Nancy Pelosi is lifting up prayers on behalf of the president and you say to yourself, well, uh, I, I don't, maybe I don't like her. Maybe I'm not in her party. 
Well, Franklin Graham actually agrees on this point. Back in 2014, when Barack Obama was president, Franklin Graham talked openly about how he was praying for the president. Very similar prayers to the prayers that Nancy Pelosi is praying for the president today. Again, prayer is actually not partisan. Prayer is something that we are responsible to do. We are called in Scripture to do. We have the privilege of doing. And although uh, prayer is not a partisan weapon, it is the most powerful weapon that we have in the world today. And so let us um, humbly place ourselves in a posture of prayer before the Lord our God and intercede on the behalf of all of those in leadership, humbly submitting to God that his will be done today on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, next up, Dr. Linda Mintel will be back. She and I are going to talk about a number of things. You can actually check out what she is up to at drlindamintel.com. You hear her right here on Saturday mornings in the Dr. Linda Mintel Show. Uh, We're going to talk about the toys that we play with uh, and what the toys we play with tell us about ourselves and then Mattel's new gender-neutral Barbie dolls. All right, that's up next. All right, because uh, during the break, I was looking at DrLindaMental.com. I happen to know she's going to be in Nashville. There you go. Linda, welcome back. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Yeah, next week I'll be in Nashville. I'm going to be on the uh, Mike Huckabee show. Um, I'm going to be taping something for them on my new book, which I think we're going to talk about next time I'm on. And, uh, yeah, I'll be at a conference doing a lot of stuff, so it'll be really fun. My daughter lives there, so I'm really excited to come just to see her, too. That's so fun. All right, so I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited for your forthcoming book, which we're now just going to whet people's appetite for and say, mm, you just have to wait until the next time Linda and I talk because we're not going to focus on that book today. However, one of the things, Linda, that I happen to know about our listeners is that we have an extraordinary percentage of people who are living with chronic pain. Like right now, most of the people who are listening to us have some sort of physical pain. Like we actually actually statistically know that about our listeners. And so I am very much looking forward to your forthcoming book and our conversation related to it. Um, but we're not talking about that today. Today we're talking about the toys that we play with. I just want to start with that. What do okay. the toys we play with tell us about ourselves? And then we're going to move into a conversation about this new series of dolls that uh, I'm going to call them Barbie dolls because they are in the Barbie doll sort of uh, line by Mattel, but they sure don't look like uh, the old Barbie dolls that, you know, frankly, kids like to take the clothes off of because they had some anatomical interest. So we're going to we're going to talk about that uh, in just a minute. But tell us uh, what are the toys that we play with? Tell us about ourselves. You know, Carmen, there have been a lot of studies on, on this because if you've had children of different genders, I have a boy and a girl, and my son had such different interests, and there was no pressuring from us as parents to push him into things. In fact, we were very not wanting to have guns in the house or toy guns or whatever, and he would go out into the backyard and pick up sticks and act like he was doing something to shoot a something or whatever. So there definitely is a, a difference in the interest. And uh, there was a study that was done. It was really interesting um, by a couple of researchers uh, that that looked at sort of gender typing of children's toys. 
And they did this thing where they took a truck and they took the color off the truck and made it white. And then they decided to put it out there and see if girls and boys would play with it alike. Well, yeah, they did. So the conclusion of that study was if you remove the gender cues, then maybe both genders will be interested. But I can go back to that. We had one of those little drivable trucks that when my kids were younger, and my daughter liked going in that as much as my son did. Now, when my daughter was playing with dolls, my son had zero interest in that. And again, there was no like taboo against that or please don't touch that or anything like that. So there are some differences and those differences really have a lot to do with the the brain differences of females and males. There's so many things I could I could say about this. There are sex differences in empathy that emerge in infancy, which is why I think you see a lot more doll playing with girls. Um, and this persists through the development of the a gap between adult women and men. So there's brain differences right there. And there's also a ton of brain differences that uh, program you differently and make you more interested in certain things. And it has to do with pre- prenatal hormone exposure and early gene expression differences and all kinds of things influence that. But fundamentally, the brains are different. Now, the brain is plastic, which means it's easily changeable by experiences and infant and um experiences in culture. So this is why this is becoming such a big deal, because culture definitely influences the development of children and teens. All right. So now I want to pivot to the the Mattel launch of this, quote, gender inclusive uh, doll series. So the toy giant Mattel launched a line of, quote, gender inclusive dolls last week meant to cater to children who want toys, quote, untouched by gender norms, or parents, at least, who want those uh, for their kids. They come with a a variety of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm just reading the article, right? So um, the toys toys, uh, apparently come with a variety of clothing options and uh, wigs designed to blur the line between boys and girls. I also note that um, they're very young. These, These dolls do not look like... Uh, mature Barbie and mature Ken, and there's a reason for that as well. So take it, take it from. Oh, you know what? Paul's going to be uh, Paul's going to be saying we have to take a break. When we come back, um, Linda Mental and I are going to talk about this. She's going to tell us first of all why uh, why this is an interesting conversation for us to be having um, for Mattel to be offering this line of quote gender neutral dolls, but then also why they look so young. That's up next here on Morning. <laughs> All right, we have talked in the past about uh, a person named Nanette Hammond who has had dozens of plastic surgeries in order to make her body look like uh, Barbie, the Barbie doll. We now have Mattel, the maker of the Barbie doll, which was launched in 1959, um, to be sexually explicit. Uh, We now have Mattel launching a line of gender-neutral or gender-inclusive dolls. Um, give us your perspective on this, Linda, and tell us why these dolls look so young. I, I love the line that you read, uh, Carmen, that said, children who want toys untouched by gender norms. Like, children aren't even <laughs> capable of that kind of a thought <laughs> developmentally at that age. They don't have the abstraction to understand what that's about. And then the caveat was, or parents who want them for their kids. So that is where this is 
um, more driven. And it's driven, I think, completely by uh, uh, identity politics and a political agenda. There is nothing in this that is is really healthy, I don't think, for kids. If you're just going to confuse kids even more about what this gender identity stuff is all about, it's just going to, this is just going to be a part of it. Now, there was something that I read, um, it was an interesting take that said that perhaps that there's a generation of kids that have been raised on video games where they could create their own avatars and whatever styling and gender they wanted to do, maybe that has been a part of this because they're so used to video games doing that and being able to have that kind of creativity when they're when they're playing games. Maybe that's part of it, but there's also then in that article talked about the celebrities that come out and talk about being uh, gender non-binary, which, um, you know, that influence. And then I do want to say, I do want to bring this up because I think it's so important that there was a study done at Brown University and it was published on a a very respected academic journal, peer-reviewed journal, science journal called PLOS One. And it was a study that was looking at something called rapid onset gender dysphoria. So this is where um, teenagers with no interest in any kind of gender issues, I mean, other than the one that the, the, the sexual one that they had been a biological sex, they'd been assigned by birth. All of a sudden, they were identifying with transgender for the first time during puberty or after puberty. And parents were going, what is going on? I just don't see why all of a sudden my child would be doing this. And the study was really well done methodologically, which is something we always look for. Um, and so what they found was that these teens were being immersed in social media and online videos that were influencing them in terms of their beliefs and their um, changing their gender identity. And they also, it had a lot to do with if you belong to a peer group that was very much um, into feeling dissatisfied with your gender and wanting to be transgendered. So they published the study. And here's the astounding part of that. Um, Because Brown University received so many complaints and said that the study was transphobic. That's the science. They're accusing science of being transphobic. And it might upset or invalidate members of the transgender community. Brown University decided to censor its academic research because it didn't fit an ideology of a particular group. That is the important thing to, to let you people know because that says that behind all of this, when we see a move like this with a doll, there's a political um, agenda, there's identity politics involved, and that group is pressuring by fear a lot of retailers, you better get in this game or else. And I think that's really what's going on here. So just to be clear, um, academic research, peer-reviewed academic research, which did did not align with the current narrative the current narrative in the culture being that um, there's there's nothing uh, wrong with, nothing unusual about uh, believing that you are uh, a person of a gender that is different than your your chromosomes would say. Um, uh, that has been removed from sort of the public from public awareness. Um, because of the feelings, to protect the feelings of people who are genuinely suffering from this kind of confusion, this gender dysphoria. That, that's really troubling. It's very troubling. And, and it's interesting that the Diagnostic, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the, the manual that we use to make diagnosis, and gender dysphoria is one of those diagnoses, says that gender confusion, uh, about 98% of gender confusion from boys and about 88% of 
gender confused girls eventually accept their biological sex after naturally passing through puberty. So there is this kind of normal confusion, who am I? It's called identity formation at that stage of your life. And you're confused and you're kind of wondering, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll try a few things that is not you know, considered gender, gender stereotyped. And, and so that's normal and natural. And if you leave people alone, if you leave kids and teens alone, most of them, almost all of them will then gender conform to their biological sex. But now what we're seeing is an interruption in that process and, and trying to persuade kids when they're in that confusion part and saying, oh, you know, this is what you really are. This is what you really need to do. And we're trying to steer them into more and more of this. And it's really getting serious because it, it ends up then with, you know, kids getting um, cross-sex hormones at early ages, which are permanently going to um, affect their physical life for the rest of their life. So this isn't something that's just something we should be concerned about. It's very concerning. And I'll tell you, I've been a therapist for 25 years. And a lot of these kids who go through gender identity confusion have a lot of adverse childhood experiences. A lot of times there's sexual abuse in the background. There's all kinds of trauma, maybe a hostile divorce, an alcoholic parent who they're not identifying with because they're so mean and cruel to them. And now they're telling us in the therapeutic world that we're not supposed to talk about any of those things. We're just supposed to affirm whatever feeling they're having at the moment. And to me, that's almost abusive to do that to a child. Okay, let's talk about quickly. Um, it's notable to me that these dolls that Mattel is making um, don't, I mean, obviously they don't show any what we might call secondary sexual characteristics, right? That they, they are all prepubescent and there's a reason for that. Um, and let's talk about the, the use of um, puberty blockers and just, it's so contrary to the Christian worldview. Like we believe people should develop uh, along their natural physical course. Puberty blockers actually prohibit that. And there's a lot of people now using them um, to prevent kids from actually becoming, maturing into the physical bodies that God gave them? Well, it's not just the Christian worldview. It's also science. So <laughs> puberty, um, you know, I think they're doing this because they're trying to influence children before they get into puberty. So they'll start talking that way. And, and the parents really have a lot of influence over that. Puberty is not a disease. And puberty blocking hormones can be so dangerous, reversible or not, they, they induce a state of disease. It's called the absence of puberty, and it inhibits growth and fertility, which is really important in a previously biologically healthy child. The group that talks about this so eloquently, Carmen, is the American College of Pediatricians, and they have been urging healthcare professionals, educators, legislators to reject all policies that condition children to accept as normal a life of chemical and surgical um, inter interventions at, at such an early age. And they really believe that this is, you know, they need, we need to look at facts, not I ideology. And that's really where things have gone wrong. They've gone so far as to call the early use of these puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones as child abuse, because those children are not capable at that stage in life in making those decisions that are going to influence their physical health for the rest of their life. Linda, thanks so much um, for being with us today. Thank you for what you do every single day. You guys can check it all out at drlindamental.com. You can hear her here, hear, 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 uh -huh. hear her here. Uh, Saturdays at 1030 a.m. on the Linda Mental 
Dr. Linda Mental's show, and you can check out her new book in actually just a few days. We're going to talk about that the next time that she's with us. Linda, thanks so much. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. Getting back, bad ideas uh, back in their cages. This is an interesting way of thinking about it. What is it today that you need Jesus to lay hold of in your mind? Like, right, there's a passage in Scripture that talks about uh, having every thought captive to Christ. And so there are things that, uh, there are ideas, there are images that pass into our mind Um, And we need to certainly not allow them to pass out of our mouths or into the action of of our hands or the living of our lives. But the way that that happens is inviting by the power of the Holy Spirit for every thought, every thought to be held captive to Jesus Christ. So consider that right now. What would it look like today for you to invite God by the power of his Holy Spirit to hold every single one of your thoughts captive to Christ, that you would literally have the mind of Christ on the matters of the day because the Holy Spirit would be the operating system of your mind. Like you'd actually, you know, fishing attempts by the by the enemy, um, other attempts by the enemy to get in there and prowl around in your thoughts and uh, lead you to think and believe things that are absolutely contrary to God's character and his will for your life, that Jesus Christ would actually lay hold of those and take those thoughts captive he can do that. Jesus didn't just die on the cross uh, to liberate us from the penalty of sin and death. He died on the cross to liberate us from the power of sin in life right now. Right now, if you ask him to, Jesus will lay hold of the thoughts in your mind that are contrary to God's best for you. Literally, like that's, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly right now. And yes, eternal in heaven with the Father. All right, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We're going to be back in just a moment with a conversation with David Aikman. He and I are going to turn our attention to the chaos in the U.K. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. How do you handle those inevitable moments when your teen begins to doubt? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. From her earliest years, you convince your little girl that she can accomplish anything. But as kids move from childhood to adolescence, they naturally become introspective and insecure. And sometimes her private thoughts get a little dark like, why am I here and what's my purpose? So if your teen starts posing those daunting life questions, don't panic. This search for meaning is one of the most empowering stages your teen will ever go through. Help her uncover her talents, her strengths, and her passions as she embarks on a lifelong quest for purpose. Self-confidence rarely comes without a season of self-doubt. Don't rescue your daughter. Instead, help her through it. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me again today is Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. We love to check in with Dr. Aikman uh, and remind us remind us where you are today so that folks can get a sense of, um, tell us what the time of day is, where you are, what the weather is like. People like to, you know, know who we're talking with. Well, it's about 1.35 on the after, in the afternoon, and it's in a small town called Bray, which is on the east coast of Ireland on the Irish Sea, and it's about 60 miles south of Dublin. It's a very nice, quiet little town, but today we're 
enjoying, if that's the right word, the beginning of a, a, a long rainy season. So uh, we've had very nice weather recently, but it's going to get wet again, I think. David, we um, we appreciate you being with us. Um, it, it seems to us as we, I mean, we know that as people look up across the pond our direction, you see political chaos because of impeachment. But when we look across the pond in your direction, we see uh, no small measure of chaos as well. Bring us up to date on what is happening in the UK. Well, you know, this is a very interesting question, Carmen, because I've tried to look into it very closely, and I've tried to take a long-distance view. And the fact is that you have a situation in Britain today where the population is being stymied in its aspirations by the the British Parliament. Most of the members of the Parliament are strongly supportive of Remain in the EU. And one of the parties, actually the Liberal Democrats, actually says that if it comes to power, it will reverse the Leave decision. But the fact is, in 2016, 17.5 million people, the largest turnout in, in British electoral history, voted to leave the EU. And people are absolutely fed up with what is going on. And... Boris Johnson, the prime minister, is attempting to wrestle his way out of the trap imposed upon him by members of parliament who want to slow down the whole process or even stop it completely. And so um, when we when we consider what's uh, what's at stake. Maybe that's the best question, because I think that, you know, that's kind of the conversation we're having here in the U.S. You know, what's at stake for us is really the truth. Um, what's at stake for us is a conversation about not only who we are, but who we want to be, who we aspire to be as a people. Um, when you think about what's at stake in the UK, in the conversations you all are having, what do you feel like the answer to that question is? What's at stake? But, uh, you know, it's a very interesting question, Carmen, because the issue of English or British identity is absolutely uppermost. And in fact, I had a, uh, I went to a reception on uh, Saturday night with all of the grandchildren and all of my grandnieces from my sister and nephews. And there was a very nice fellow who is the husband of my eldest niece, the daughter of my sister. And he is very much pro-Brexit, but he says, it's quite dangerous to open your mouth and say that you support Brexit because the attitude towards you, the elites, is that you're some kind of yahoo or you're a deplorable. I mean, it's very similar to the sort of 2016 electoral situation where Hillary Clinton labeled anybody who supported Trump as a homophobic, Islamophobic, whatever, deplorable. And that is the attitude taken towards the stalwarts who are supporting the decision to leave the EU. All right. So one of the things that I'm reading um, in relationship to the uh, conversation about Brexit is that these bishops from the Church of England have issued a call for respect on all sides. Uh, And so I guess uh, I'm curious, as a Christian, um, first of all, remind us, you know, the Church of England, what kind of power it has or what kind of influence it has 
and um and then how how do you think people receive this encouragement maybe is the word um by this uh the church of england's college of bishops calling for a tone of listening and respect in the debates uh surrounding brexit well it's a well meaning uh petition to everybody in parliament but i think it's missing the point First of all, the Church of England does not have a great influence on English culture. Uh, That ceased quite a long time ago. And so people don't pay very much attention to what it's asking for. And besides which, the language in Parliament has not been extreme. I mean, Boris Johnson has used the term like surrender, meaning that the requirement that he has to ask the EU for more time to negotiate a deal with them, basically puts the ball completely in the EU court. And in that sense, he's right. Um, To use the term surrender is quite common in political discourse in Parliament. And there's nothing extreme about it. So I don't know why the bishops accept, I might explain it by surmising that they are predominantly pro-Remain. So they obviously are on the side that wants uh, Britain to stay in the EU, and they're probably fed up with the fact that we're, Britain is about to leave. All right, one one more question on this, and then when we come back from the break, I want to talk about China and Hong Kong and the importance of tomorrow uh, in terms of the date on the calendar. Um, we, we're reading that Tony Blair is uh, re-engaged in the Brexit conversation, Theresa May uh, is not absent from the conversation either. Um, talk talk about the influence of former, um, I mean, this would be unusual in the United States. We would not have former presidents or immediately former presidents like actively, super actively engaged in something at the highest levels. But that seems to not be true in, in Great Britain. Well, it's certainly become more recent frequently. And Theresa May hasn't been too directly involved. But the former British Prime Minister, John Major, who was an ardent champion of the EU, he's been criticizing the current Prime Minister in a very sort of strident way. And it's really kicking up a lot of fuss. And I don't think it's, I mean, it's not uncommon for former British Prime Ministers to criticize the current Prime Minister. But it's very unusual that someone whose prime minister comes from the same party that he was prime minister in to do that. So it it leaves a kind of a bad taste in the mouth. Um, And I think it also suggests that there is a strong feeling that the elites, the media, the establishment, the political, cultural, social establishment is ardently trying to wreck Brexit before it happens. And they're absolutely, they've got their guns targeted on uh, Boris Johnson. So poor fellow, he's got quite, a, quite a, an operation to fix up. All right, David Aikman and I are going to take a quick break. But when we return, we're going to talk about China's 70th anniversary, the 70th anniversary of the communist uh, rule there. And that anniversary is tomorrow. We're going to talk about the implications for the ongoing protests and protesters in Hong Kong. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, returning to my conversation with Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. 
Um, this is, uh, David, the 70th anniversary of the communist takeover in China. Uh, that happens right. tomorrow. Why, why does that matter, and how does it affect both the, the protests and the protesters in Hong Kong? Well, it matters to the Chinese communists because they wrap themselves in the flag of Chinese nationalism uh, for having defended the Chinese nation against foreign aggressors, people like the Japanese, and recovering territory taken by foreign, mostly European imperialists in the 19th century. Besides which, China is a very um, active uh, superpower that seeks to basically um, occupy the whole world, at least overcome the position of domination of the world taken by the United States since World War II. So China is an active rival for the hegemony over the globe of the United States. And it is curious that these protests in Hong Kong are marring the happy picture of joyful Chinese celebrating the anniversary of communist arrival in China. So it's going to be a very active day tomorrow, the, uh, uh, well, not tomorrow, on, on the, the 1st of October, because the uh, authorities are going to have to control <coughs> demonstrations against, um, against the Hong Kong government. But actually, yesterday, most of the demonstrations in Hong Kong were against totalitarianism. So it's the protests in Hong Kong have reached a stage <clears throat> that is sort of almost holistic in its um, anti-communist uh, momentum. This is something the Chinese government is really very alarmed about. <clears throat> So uh, I'm reading right now from Reuters that China has quietly doubled the troop levels in Hong Kong. There are now something like 12,000 Chinese troops in Hong Kong, um, among them members of the People's Armed Police, which is a paramilitary force, answers, which answers directly to uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China. Um, uh, I, I worry, um, David, that... You know, that this this could turn very quickly in a way that would be just genuinely horrifying for um, the people of Hong Kong. And we have a lot of Christian brothers and sisters uh, in Hong Kong and a lot of ministries based in Hong Kong that reach right. into mainland China. Just give us your perspective right. on, right. you know, on, on some of those, uh, you know, on the concerns that you have as a person who's been there. You know, what are some of the concerns that you have for Christians who live in Hong Kong and Hong Kong really being going into the future a, um, uh, I mean, a, a point from which um, Christian ministries can continue to reach into mainland China? Well, that's a very good question, Carmen. The, the trouble is that the Chinese communist, the government in Beijing, has been putting the squeeze on Hong Kong ministries that reach into China, and it's getting harder and harder for them do the kind of thing that they've done very effectively for decades. And I know several Chinese ministers living in Hong Kong who have 
actively gone in and out of China, evangelizing and teaching. And they're very concerned about the whole climate in Hong Kong now. Because since the Beijing government of the communists has basically said Hong Kong cannot, can no longer enjoy the freedoms that it originally had with the Sino-British agreement in 1997. If that's the case, then all the civic freedoms that made religious activity possible are slowly going to be squeezed out. So people are very concerned about that. David, um, we probably don't have time to really unpack completely what the impact of uh, the conversations that we are having here in the United States about the Ukraine are having in the Ukraine. But maybe you can give us a sense of, um, from a Ukrainian perspective, how is the U.S. Uh, impeachment process, which features the UK- Ukrainian president, or at least a conversation with him, how, how is it affecting things in the Ukraine? Well, it's very hard from here to... I don't have any Ukrainian friends with whom I'm in direct contact currently. I've had a lot of people, including American missionaries, who spent a lot of time in Ukraine. And they tell me that the Ukrainians basically support um, the United States support for the Ukrainian regime. They hope the United States will stop the Russians from taking more of their territory in the east of the country. But I don't think the average Ukrainian loses any sleep, particularly about what's happening in the United States regarding impeachment proceedings against. President Trump. So I'm not sure whether to real focus on that uh, in daily Ukrainian life. (laughs) You know, that's helpful, David. Like, right. It's helpful for us to remember that the things that we imagine people might be obsessed over um, are not actually of any concern to most people at all. So thank you for, uh, as always, joining us uh, for conversation here on Mornings with Carmen. That's Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed magazine. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much, Carmen. Enjoy being with you. Likewise. We'll be right back. All right. So a couple of little reminders here as you head out there to be an active ambassador of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Today is Rosh Hashanah. So you can wish your uh, Jewish neighbors um, uh, a blessed Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and you can wish them a happy new year, 5780-5780. Uh, it is September the 30th, 2019. It's also the first day of the new year, 5780. There you go. That's a stimulating, interesting conversation to have today. You could also uh, be a part of my litter lifting team. So one of the things that we touched on when we talked with Nick Pitts uh, is the, you know, people's propensity to litter. You and I need to be sort of part of the anti-litter crowd. And so uh, I shared this this sense that pieces of litter are like little pieces of Satan. And as a part of uh, bearing witness in the world today of God's redemptive power um, and partnering with God in bringing redemption to all of creation, I pick up little pieces of litter and I throw them in the trash and I acknowledge that I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm taking back uh, that which Satan thinks he has um, lordship over, which is the beauty of the earth. So there you go. You can be one of my litter lifters today. 
um, all kinds of opportunities for you and I to bear positive public witness to who Jesus Christ is. Let's have civil conversation be a part of that. Uh, If you and I would learn to speak with civility to those with whom we disagree, that would be a very uh, positive, very positive, powerful witness today in the world. All right, you've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. Check out what we're doing online at MyFaithRadio.com and ReconnectWithCarmen.com. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.